on Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer, Faith Stanley. Follow on Textbooked wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. This week, we are talking about recovering from trauma. To do so, we're going back in time to the early days of psychiatry and PTSD. Picture this, it's World War I. Millions of men fought for the British Empire on the front lines. No one expected the effect of the new weaponry that was being used. High-velocity artillery shells that burst in the air and sent shrapnel flying all over. Flamethrowers could burn men alive. Minefields, barbed wires, poison gas. Charles Glass is a journalist. He wrote the book Soldiers Don't Go Mad, which accounts for World War I history in the early days of PTSD treatment. This new type of warfare killed a massive amount of people. For example, July 1st, 1916, when British General Haig launched the Battle of the Somme, a big offensive that was supposed to break through the German lines and bring a quick end to the war. On that day, 20,000 British soldiers died and another 40,000 were wounded. These were teenage boys mostly, saw their friends and brothers cut down in front of them, and many were wounded themselves. Wow, these kids were our age, or even younger. Many were not wounded. There were no marks on their bodies, but they went into hospitals because they couldn't move. They were either paralyzed or they were trembling. They'd gone blind. They'd gone deaf. They had physical symptoms that the doctors could not understand or explain. Soldiers were having physical reactions to the psychological horrors of war. Now we understand this as post-traumatic stress disorder. But that diagnosis didn't exist back then. Having these kinds of problems and not Knowing what it is, is an extra horror in itself. This led to the introduction of psychiatrists to the front. No war had ever had such numbers of people having nervous breakdowns at the front. Some soldiers went far, far away from the front lines to recover. They stayed at a military psychiatric hospital in Edinburgh, Scotland, named Craig Lockhart. What was it like to recover there? Honestly, it sounds like a peaceful place to recover. Picture this. The military hospital is a huge brick estate surrounded by a large green lawn. There are men playing sports, writing poetry, and bonding in communities. Craig Lockhart was run by the British military, and they brought in psychiatrists who were leaders in the early days of their profession. Dr. William Holtz Rivers, who was one of the leading psychiatrists in Britain at the time, was also an anthropologist. He called it the fight or flight syndrome. So a man was, particularly an officer, his duty was to fight and to lead his men into battle, which he wanted to do, wanted conscientiously to do that. But he, all of his natural instincts were to survive and stay alive. And unable to run away because he wasn't a coward, but unable to move forward because he didn't want to die, his psyche broke down. And that's why the psychiatrist needed to treat him in order to get him 
healthy and back to the front to lead men into battle again. Dr. Arthur Brock was another prominent early psychiatrist who worked at Craig Lockhart. The interesting thing, well, many interesting things, but one interesting thing about Dr. Brock and Dr. Ribbon, both had studied psychiatry in Germany. Germany and Austria were the leading centers of psychiatric research and development. Both men began as neurologists, basically studying the brain as a physical entity, and then found that psychiatry became more interesting to them because not all of the problems of the brain were because of bumps on the head and, and concussion to the brain, but some emotional response to external experiences that people couldn't adjust to and how to help them adjust to them and understand them. Rivers believed very much in talking therapy, all of, all of Freud, and felt that by listening to men's dreams, helping them to interpret their dreams, helping them to understand what they were afraid of, and that it's human to be afraid, it's nothing to be ashamed of, that he could treat them. Dr. Rivers' solution was something called the talking cure, which is basically talking through the trauma as a way to process what happened. Dr. Brock encouraged his patients to get outside and make meaningful connections to their surroundings. Brock also was a Freudian, but he, he added to it ergotherapy, word therapy, because he felt that if it was just talking and, and interpreting dreams and so on, it wasn't enough, that they had to do something productive. They had to make good on their lives. They had to connect to a community around them, not just at the hospital, but in Edinburgh. He sent them into Edinburgh to work in the slums, to work with students, to wander in the countryside and collect stones and plants and understand the nature around, understand their place in the world, that this was vital to their mental well-being, not just of patients, but of all human beings. And that was his, that was his view before the reinforced by his experiences at Craig Lockhart and his treatment of the men. And the treatment often successful, helping to cure their minds through through this ergotherapy together with normal psychiatric consultations. Dr. Brock encouraged the recovering soldiers to put together a literary magazine for the hospital community. It was called The Hydra. Well, the Hydra was a magazine that was put out by the officers and the patients themselves. Uh, one of the, the second editor was Wilfred Owen himself, and his, his psychiatrist, Dr. Arthur Brock, thought it would have a therapeutic value for him to edit that paper and to write for that paper. It was like a college newspaper, really. It recorded all of the doings of the hospital. The hospital had concerts every Saturday. The men put on plays, Shakespeare and other plays. The men played sports, and the Hydra gave the results of all the sporting activities, whether cricket or golf. It was a way for them every week to know, or every, every other week, actually, to know what everybody else was doing in the hospital. A lot of the Hydra included poetry about the men's experiences of the war. This was an interesting parallel to me. When we think of war, we think of violence and gore and death, but poetry is lighter to me. Poetry is typically a softer, more creative concept. Because of this, the Hydra became a vehicle for two poets who are widely now considered some of the greatest poets from World War I, Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owens. Some of the men didn't write for it because they didn't have any self-confidence in their writing. Owen himself was so shy about his poetry. He'd never published poetry before the war, although he wrote it from childhood, but kept it to himself under the influence of Siegfried Sassoon, who was a published poet, 
and who came to Greg Lockhart sometime after Owen. Owen finally worked up the courage to publish under some of his poems. And the first public reaction to those poems, and they were very anti-war poems, as were Sassoon's, to his delight, those poems were very well received by the officers of the fellow patients at Craig Lockhart, who knew better than anyone else what a lie that war was, how they had gone in believing one thing and discovering another, that they weren't fighting for freedom, that they were fighting to help the British Empire expand, that they were pursuing total defeat of Germany, despite the fact that they might have wanted to negotiate an end to the war before thousands of more men died. And so it also became an anti-war vehicle. Although it wasn't widely read outside the hospital, it was on sale in the bookshops in Edinburgh. But outside Edinburgh, uh, I don't think anybody ever saw the Hydra. But now people can see it. You can see it's all online now. And it's, it's very much worth reading. Some beautiful poems and some beautiful essays by very troubled men, but very thoughtful, considerate men who absorbed their experience and are able to express it for others. That's fascinating. It's really great how through the Hydra, people can get firsthand accounts and opinions from the people who were experiencing PTSD and the soldiers who actually were having firsthand experience of the war. And it's just beautiful to see how the Hydra became an anti-war vehicle. Some men became anti-war because of their time in combat. Others were anti-war from the start. Siegfried Sassoon, specifically a famous poet, actually ended up at Craig Lockhart because he protested against the war. Sassoon did not believe that he was crazy. In fact, no one believed that Sassoon was crazy. He was sent there because he had written a public protest against the war. He had come. He had been wounded. He had lost very close friends. He had written poetry to his lost friends. And he began to see the war as a total fraud. He published a protest which was read in Parliament by an anti-war member of Parliament. And the government of the day did not want to court-martial him, which they normally would have done, but Sassoon was in a very special category. He was a published poet, he was well-known, he had won the military cross for gallantry in battle, and his first cousin, Philip Sassoon, was a member of parliament who was also the aide-de-camp of the British commander in France. And to court-martial a man of that stature would have been a very public trial in which the war would have been put on trial. And that's what Sassoon wanted. He wanted to be court-martialed. He wanted to state his reasons in open court about the fraudulence of the war, but the War Department wasn't going to have it. So they sent him to a medical board and had the medical board declare him mentally unfit and so that he would need psychiatric treatment. So he went to Craig Lockhart, was treated by Rivers, but as both men wrote, their conversations were political rather than psychiatric. Although Sassoon ultimately did go back he didn't renounce his protest, but he went back on condition that he would be able to fight again at the front. And the reason he did that was he felt guilty leaving his men behind, leaving his company behind, being very comfortable playing golf every day in Scotland while they were suffering the rigors of the trenches and warfare. So he felt it was his duty to go back, and he did go back, and he was wounded again. And he was brought back to Britain, and this time he actually was shell shot. He was sent back to Craig Lockhart for a few days and then to an auxiliary hospital of Craig Lockhart in the, in the hills of Scotland, where Rivers sent him and where he was treated successfully. Although I think in Sassoon's case, I don't think he ever recovered from the war. He spent the rest of his life writing memoirs and autobiographies about the experience of himself as an officer in the war. And uh, it changed his entire life. Very profound experience for him. And, and interestingly, both he and Rivers became socialists after the war, and Rivers died 
soon thereafter, but was going to run for parliament as a socialist. Interesting. A thing that you mentioned, Sassoon feeling guilty for leaving his fellow men behind, even though he disagreed with the war, he didn't agree with it, especially the kind of detachment that he felt the public had. They would like cheer for going to war, but not participate in it. How do you think that disconnect between kind of what the public thought it was versus what the soldiers knew it to be, what Sassoon knew it to be, um, affected the kind of anti-war movement? Sassoon loathed the ruling class that sent those boys to war. He loathed the civilians who cheered them. He wrote a poem, you smug-faced crowd with kindling eye, watch soldier lads walk by, go home and pray, you never know the hell where youth and laughter go. He felt that the civilians could have no understanding of what those boys were going through, even though they were supposedly supporting them, sending food and socks to the front and cheering them on. But in fact, they didn't need to be cheered on. They needed the war to end and to get home and not to kill or be killed. There's a quote that I read that really fascinated me. And it was, the physician's job was to heal, not to change the world in which the recovered patient returned to. So it wasn't necessarily to, based on what I understand, wasn't necessarily to kind of fix them. It was to fix them so they could go back and fight. Like it wasn't necessarily for their well-being per se solely. It was so they could have like more men at the front. Dr. Rivers wrote himself, I mean, he was a very conscientious man, about the differences between his role as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, and his role as a military officer. He talked about the uniform often taking precedence over his medical duties. And his, his uniform told him that he had to get these men back to the front. I mean, it was like a repair shop for trucks. You fix the truck and you send it back to the front. You fix them and you send them back to the front. The poet Wilfred Owens wrote about this idea in the Hydra. He wrote, quote, Many of us who came here slightly ill are now getting dangerously well, end quote. Meaning once they recover, they'll be sent back to the front lines to face the very triggers that sent them to Craig Lockhart in the first place. If they weren't fixable, they were released from the hospital, discharged from the military, and sent to mental hospitals, normal mental hospitals, which had no idea how to treat them. And many men never, ever recovered. And for years after the war, didn't recover at all. The proof of this was that when the war ended, the hospital closed because the military didn't need those men at the front anymore. It was a military duty, not a medical duty. But remember that doctors who were treating physical wounds were doing exactly the same thing. So if you had a bullet wound in your shoulder, they fixed it and sent you back to the front so you could fight again. That was the whole function of military medicine, was to make men able to perform their military duties. And that superseded any other commitment to their long-term well-being. What was the most impactful thing for you, whether it was during your research, traveling to these different places, seeing it, reading um, poetry from Sassoon, from Owens? What was the most impactful part of this book for you? It was the relationship which burgeoned into friendship between Sassoon and Rivers. They became very, very close. Sassoon called him his father confessor. Sassoon had always been looking for a father. His own father had left the family when he was five years old and died shortly thereafter. And he had had a number of surrogate fathers, including the, the groom at the family's house, who taught him to ride and to play cricket, and then other men in his life. But Rivers was really it. He'd really found the key to his life. 
and it was a real blow to him when Rivers died shortly after the war. He felt he'd lost something, a very important anchor in his life. That was, I think, the most touching relationship in a book of many touching relationships, because the brotherhood and the camaraderie that grew between these shell-shocked soldiers was very profound, and uh, they became very, very close because only they understood what they were going through. Going back to that root cause and everything that we learned from Craig Lockhart and Sassoon and the poetry they wrote in the Hydra and the treatments that were developed for the treatment of shell shock and PTSD as we know it today. In your book, there's a section and it has like pages, like photos and like kind of stories. So like the grave of Owens when he eventually dies and a tale of a wife who realizes that like her husband came back physically, but not mentally which I feel is a very similar sentiment that a lot of people today, a lot of military families today feel. What do you think we as an audience should take away from this book and how can we apply it to today? One of the unfortunate outcomes of all of the learning at Greg Lockhart with the psychiatrist learned a lot about shell shock, about what men were going through and how to help them, was that shortly thereafter, despite all they published, it was all forgotten. By the time the Second World War started, there was battle fatigue at the Second World War. They had to learn it all over again. They had to learn the whole psychiatric therapeutic methods that had been developed at Craig Lockhart and other hospitals during the First World War. They had to start from scratch. Again, after the Second World War, it was all buried because that's not a side of war that people like to champion. They like to champion the heroism and the glory and all of that. So by the time Vietnam came around, where thousands of young men broke down, and became drug addicts and were, were lost in their lives and committed suicide when they came home. Many, and again, they all had to be relearned. And so much so that right now, military suicides from Afghanistan and Iraq are much, much higher than the national average of suicides. Those young people who suffered the trauma of that have not been properly cared for. And it's because it always gets forgotten. And I think it's, it's tragic, but I, I suppose the real lesson is maybe stop waging wars. It's been very insightful, and I really appreciate you for coming on and talking about your book. I just want to thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks to Charles Glass for joining us on the podcast. His most recent book is called Soldiers Don't Go Mad. He's also written other books on war, which you should all check out, including The Deserters, Americans in Paris, Tribes with Flags, and The Northern Front in Iraq War Diary. You were really taken by this idea of poetry and violence. Can you talk more about that connection? It's a great question. When we think of war, we think of violence. But poetry is typically thought of as a softer, more creative field. I think what surprised me most was the brotherhood and just like them wanting to write poetry to work through all of their like emotions and experiences and symptoms. How do you think the early days of PTSD treatment compared to modern day PTSD treatment? I would like to say we're at two polar ends of the spectrum, but I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we've made great improvements in terms of being able to talk about it and there's an openness. Like if you need help talking to people, having access to support groups, even like social media in a way you can connect with people and reach out for help. It's really interesting how we describe the early days of PTSD treatment because really PTSD isn't a new phenomenon. The research and experimentation that's been going on has been really amazing on the progress we've made and we've been able to like identify brain circuitry that 
was affected by PTSD. Everybody's PTSD experience is inherently personal. I would say we still very much are looking for answers to the questions that we have, just like Dr. Brock and just like Dr. Rivers. But I think in terms of progress, we certainly have made a lot of it. That's all for this episode of Untextbooked. I'm producer Faith Stanley. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Untextbooked is taking a break next week for the holiday, but we'll be back in two weeks with an incredible episode all about the history of spoken word poetry. Follow Untextbooked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, leave us a review. I want to thank this reviewer who wrote, You sure will learn about things not taught you in history classes. This is our future, y'all, and it gives me hope. Drop your review if you like what we're up to. Learn more about the podcast at untextbook.com. You can sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources with every episode. For behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at untextbooked. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain and Cece Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People. Rachel King, Annie Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. Mm-hmm.